Thank you, God. You promised in Luke 11 that when we ask for the Spirit, He always comes. He instructs us, He gives us gifts, He convicts us of sin, and He encourages us. So thank you for being here, Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A young man loved, had just gotten a new sports car, and he loved driving it on curvy mountain roads. He just loved to feel it grab the road and take him around the curve going really fast. And one uh, weekend morning, he was driving, the sun was bright, he was having a great time, and as he came to a blind curve, he couldn't see around, all of a sudden, a woman driver, sorry ladies, but it was a woman driver, came around the curve completely out of control. She almost went off the cliff. But at the last minute, she steered and came back. And she got in his lane then. She overcorrected. She's coming straight at him in his lane. And uh, he was panicking. He thought he was going to be killed. And, uh, but at the last minute, she steered again and went around him. And as she went around him, she yelled out of her window, Pig! at him. He was furious to think that this woman, who was in his lane, going to hit him and kill him, would call him a pig. So he thought, what can I do? What can I do? So he hauled back, Hog! And he was feeling pretty good about it. At least he'd been able to call her another bad name to think she'd insult him. He went around the curve and hit the big fat pig standing in the middle of the road. She wasn't yelling an insult at him, was she? She was trying to help him, (laughs) trying to to, uh, warn him something coming. I see in that story my, my Lord. He is like a loving parent. He's always trying to help me. Sometimes his scriptures and inspired writings seem like he's yelling pig at me. But really, it's only because he's trying to help me, his warnings. And his warnings are always backed up with opportunities. Uh, You know, they say in the Chinese language, there's two words for, well, his mission. Talking about our God is just always to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. And uh, that's what he's about. He's just a God who cares about you today. He loves you. And the gospel he's given us to share is all good news. I'd love to read Ephesians 1 with you again, because there's so much in there about being set and having all the blessings of God, seated with him in high places, adopted, uh, we're accepted in the beloved, all those things. So if you're feeling guilty, you're not feeling very righteous today, remember that you're accepted in the beloved. Jesus covers you. The Father sees him and not you, his righteousness. So thank God for forgiveness and all those things he gives us. Um, it's back to the Chinese language. They say in the Chinese language, um, there are two picture characters for crisis. It's danger and opportunity. Uh, and that's true, isn't it? Whenever there's a crisis, there are some opportunities. You think of the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, those who had capital, those who had some cash, came out pretty well. Because when the stocks fell in the tank, what did they do? <laughs> they bought them low, and they've ridden them up now for 12, 13 years. So you can make a lot of money if you're ready and prepared and look for the opportunities in a crisis. And the good thing about the way the Lord is, he always sees around the corner, he always knows what's coming, and he's always trying to help us get ready and prepared and give us whatever we need so that we can take the opportunities instead of the negative part of the crisis. Yeah, we're in a crisis, aren't we? The pandemic, we're tired of these masks. I got mine off today. That's kind of nice, but I try not. I'm I'm vaccinated, so I shouldn't really hurt you too much. Uh, But... Um, we're in a crisis. We know that. And uh, Jesus told about this crisis. His disciples one day said, Lord, tell us, what are the signs of your coming and the end of the age? And you know that. You could probably all preach the Matthew 24 sermon 
If I asked you to do today, the different signs that came along, what were they? There's categories of signs that would happen before Jesus came back. Political upheaval, at least we don't have any of that today, right? Countries fighting, warring, men's hearts failing them with fear, terrorism, all that kind of thing. Then there's natural disasters. We have a few of those around (laughs) as well. Uh, Sinfulness in the world escalating to a terrible point where there's lawlessness. People are cold. Their love is drying up. they're, They're being violent with each other. Boy, some things happen this week that just break your heart, don't they? Devil, that's the way the devil runs the world. Pretty soon we're going to have God's way all the time. False religions, so many. Janet and I have traveled around the world 200,000 miles a year. Every country's got strongholds on it, one kind or another. Some are 95% you know, this religion or 95% that religion or whatever. Communism is, is clamping down again and, and persecuting and all these kind of things. So we see that. We hear about the Antichrist. We hear about the the false deceivers who will claim to be Christ. So all of those signs have been fulfilled when you come down to it. Um, there are a few things to happen yet, but basically Matthew 24, the signs have all been fulfilled. Is that right? Or is there one that hasn't yet? Yeah. Matthew 24, 14, 24, 14 and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then then you will come. So that is the last sign. That's the sign we're waiting for, for Jesus to come back. And uh, so anyway, I'm I'm just wondering today, what is it he's waiting for? (laughs) When will he come back? You wonder that sometimes? Uh, He gave us the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spoke to them all, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So we know what our commission is. We know what our mission is. And uh, after he gave that commission, he was on the Mount of Olives. Many of the people gathered together. We're told 500 people, witnesses, saw him. If you uh, haven't seen the movie Case for Christ, it's about the, the evidences for the resurrection, a dramatic movie. It's really good. And, you know, there's so many evidences that he lived, died, People saw him after the resurrection. Better evidences than you can find for most any other historical event. But anyway, um, after that happened, up sprang the New Testament church, right? The disciples had been converted finally. Instead of arguing over who was the greatest, (laughs) they were now in an upper room. We read the text this morning. They were praying, confessing sins, anything they had between each other. They were studying the scriptures. They were talking about mission. And they were gathering together, being assembled together. They they, uh, prayed and they waited Jesus told him, don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit falls on you, right? <laughs> Acts 1.4, he said, uh, being assembled together, he told him, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard of me. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all of Judea and to the end of the earth. And that all continued then with one accord and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The story of Acts is a story of miracles. Amen? You, I had someone say a while back, you, you read any passage, you read any chapter of Acts, it's like plugging into an electrical uh, outlet. <laughs> the power is there. The Holy Spirit's there. There's miracles. People are raised from the dead. They're healed. The gospel's going dramatically in 30 years. It went to the whole world at that time. Uh, just amazing things happen in the book of Acts. And my heart is longing for that again. How about you? We're going to see it. We are seeing it. 
I'm going to share some of that, what I see today. But uh, the real latter rain, the real last thrust, is still just before us. And God is calling us to be a part of that. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, you know, we, we worry sometimes about methods and how we're going to reach people. Um, they didn't have a lot of methodological logical training, did they? They had no money. They had no degrees. They hadn't been to seminary. They didn't have pastors. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have any structure. All they had was what? The Holy Spirit and prayer. And God came upon them. They spoke. People heard in their own languages. Miracles happened. Everything that seemed to come to them was for a reason. And there's a certain process that you'll see happening. I don't know if that's right for that yet, Leah or not. I've got my slides here. But. Hmm? Acts what? Yeah, they were all of one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In the book of Acts, I had a friend tell me this when I first got to the General Conference, and it's, it's really true. I did some studying on it. He said, you'll find over and over again a certain process that happened in this experience in the book of Acts. First of all, there was all kinds of situations, problems, uh, persecutions. Sometimes it was opportunities for the gospel. What's the first thing they did when that happened? The Holy, uh, they would gather together, and they would pray and fast. Somehow that got left off. But the first thing they would do is pray and last, uh, fast together every time. Let's pray. We'll gather everybody. Peter and John are in prison. Gather, fast, pray. Somebody's got to go out on a mission. We'll pray and fast over them. Then the Holy Spirit, next thing, the Holy Spirit's power comes. The Holy Spirit shows up. Over and over, these passages, the same thing. The problem's overcome. God's word then goes forth with power. Some people accept it and are converted. Others um, reject it. And so there's criticism and persecution. But every time, the church grows dramatically. So as you look at the power in the book of Acts... It starts with prayer, starts with the Holy Spirit. One man said, you know, uh, I think it was A.W. Tozier, said the church today, probably uh, 95% of what we do would continue on even if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn. And we might not notice a difference. We become so good at methods, so good at doing things around the world. And as I share this with pastors around the world, they agree. We, we know how to do evangelism now. We know how to do this and that. So we tend to plan our programs and rush around. And we don't take time to really connect with the Holy Spirit for the power of the baptism of the Spirit every day. So that's the, the lesson we need to learn, I think, today, even as we talk about some miracles that are happening in the world church. Um, I'm going to show you a little video that we did some years ago. It's a sort of a trailer for 10 of these United Prayer Works uh, videos, and you might want to see it, just kind of looking at how prayer has worked in, the, in Acts and in the church. It all started in a small upper room with humble, fervent prayer. Threatened by the authorities and banned from preaching, the church prayed and two men witnessed with great power and grace. And people prayed everywhere, in one accord, in repentance, with confession and humility, and the lives of people were changed. Two men started out on a missionary journey that would turn the world as they knew it 
upside down. And the message went out to the world beyond. Corporate prayer helped a prisoner escape. A king requested that his people fast and pray, and the enemy was defeated. A battle won without the need to fight. Through a faithful servant and a young queen's faith and courage, a people were saved. Stories in the Bible showing the power of united prayer. Yeah, this church believes in prayer, I know that, and we've seen the power of it, what it can do, and how God has raised up ministries and healed people and done things for you, but I believe we're still only scratching the surface of what really calling on God's name can do for us in our families, in our church, in our communities. Um, Amos 3.7, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Uh, Do you believe that? God is always, again, trying to warn us what's coming, trying to tell us for our own good to help us and to give us whatever we need. There's a graph that I uh, asked Zach to put together. If you look at what's happened in the history, salvation history, you see before every major event, especially a dangerous one like the flood, God sent a lifetime prophet. He sent Noah to preach for 120 years to warn people so they could take advantage of the ark and could get get saved, but most of them didn't. Exodus, he sent Moses. Uh, Joshua later, going to the land of Canaan, ahead of the Messiah coming, we see a number of prophecies in the Old Testament. Daniel, John the Baptist. And so again, after we move into the New Testament, after Jesus was raised, we see the same thing happening. In about uh, 1840s came this message out of Daniel's prophecy about the 2300 years, most of you know that, uh, that said they thought Jesus was coming back to the earth in 1844, 2300 years after that prophecy was given. Well, they were wrong about the event, but they were right about the time. There was a great event happening in the sanctuary in heaven. But uh, there was an Advent movement. Now, after that, they grew up. In 1844, this was a movement, as most of you know, that that was all the churches. There were Baptists and Methodists and people all over Europe and America and everywhere. It really wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist yet, because our church wasn't formed until 1860. But there was a great disappointment. And uh, after Jesus didn't come, after this great revival and awakening, uh, they had to go back to the Lord, go back to the Word, and discover what was the problem. And that's when the mission and the, and the mission that we're evolved in now came out. We see the, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, Revelation 14, that Zach's been preaching about. Flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. When you look at Revelation 12, 17, that group that the devil's warring against the remnant is one who keeps the commandments of God. And you see in chapter 13 and 14, we've been talking about that as well. So there's a message that has to go to everybody in the world (laughs) beyond just the wonderful gospel of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Beyond that saying, okay, here's here's the last day message. Here's the last three love messages of of, uh, God for his people. And, you know, again, I'm not biased at all about Zach. I think he's been doing a great job preaching on 12 to 14 of Revelation. <laughs> but, uh, so if I say anything nice about Zach, you'll know that, that it's not biased at all. It's just, uh, just, you know, I see all the pastors in the world, and he's, you know, so good. But the reality is uh, it's the vital message. You look at Revelation, it's got so much of the Old Testament in it. These last chapters are getting us ready for the coming of Jesus. Hallelujah. So 
Anyway, uh, where are we? I want to go back now. Where are we in terms of Matthew twenty-four fourteen? If that that promise needs to be fulfilled, how are Christians around the world doing with that? Uh, we we know what happened in eighteen forty-four, and we now have a mission to try to get the three messages to everybody as well to get them ready for the coming of Jesus. Um, it's actually an impossible mission, isn't it? To take that disappointed group after 1844, again, no money, no education, no preachers, no buildings, no infrastructure. Seems like sometimes the church does better when we don't have those things. Huh? I shouldn't say that about pastors, but <laughs> we get to depending on all these things. Back then, they spent hours praying, fasting, saying, Lord, help us. We can't do this. Take this message of the three angels to the whole world. We can't do it. And so the same is true for us. With We have some of this around the world. We need to be doing the same kind of praying, the same kind of searching. But God is able. And what I want to do now is talk for just a minute about what I do see around the world in terms of this movement. And it really is an unbelievable miracle. When you think about this little group, disappointed, mocked, potatoes still in the field, Jesus didn't come, all of that. And you see what's happened. I just stand in amazement of what God has done. Uh, we had a global mission conference back several years ago at the General Conference, and they brought in the facts from archives and statistics. The global mission went on a special mission about 25, 30 years ago. They wanted to enter as many unentered countries where this message had not gone, where Christianity wasn't even. And get in those countries, get in their languages, and try to get the message out. And a lot of things have happened. We've entered a lot more countries, and a lot more good things happened, and we got the reports in, and it was very encouraging, the number of of places that have been reached and what God has done. But um, (laughs) the fact is, uh, I was amazed with some of the things. Did you know that every 28 seconds, somebody's being baptized in the world as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? Every 28 seconds? Hallelujah. About a million a year. Every two and a half hours, there's a new church being organized somewhere in the world. Uh, this message is going like angels around the world. Uh, Jan and I go every little place we go. It seems like we were in the heart of the Congo. Vehicle broke down. Little pygmy village. Somebody said, hey, I think there's a little church up this road. We walk up while they're fixing the vehicle. We went up there. Sure enough, little pastor's daughter came out to say, come look at the church. We got a little school next door, too. And we find that all over the world, we have 8,000 schools, 2 million students, church schools just like ours here, colleges and everything. We have hospitals and medical clinics. And it seems like everywhere you go in the world, there's different churches. We know that there's wonderful Christians in every church. Many of them are reaching out missions as well. But the Seventh-day Adventists have had a special focus to go to everybody in the whole world. And so you'll find many of these places, you'll find a Catholic church and an Adventist church, a Catholic school and an Adventist school a clinic by Catholics and one by Adventists. And it's just the way it has worked out that we have the mission focus for the whole world in a special way. We're not bragging about that, but thankful for what God has done. And we're now in over 209 language, nine countries, I think, of the 230 countries, over 900 and some languages. Of course, there's 7,000 heart languages. <laughs> so that's what brings us to reality a little bit. Um, How are we really doing? Will Jesus come soon? Will we reach every villager soon? We used to talk about missionaries going over that last hill, and once we told everybody, it would be over and we could go home. How is it, really? That's when the bad news came in. Um, After telling us some good things before we got to bragging, 
They said, but there's 1.7 billion people in the world who've never even heard the name of Jesus. Did you get that? 1.7 billion out of 7.5 billion in the world have never even heard of Jesus. So I guess they haven't had the gospel. <laughs> you don't hear a gospel from a tree. Uh, so anyway, that's bad news. Then there's a 1040 window. And I think Leah's put it up on the screen here. Have you heard of the 1040 window? <laughs> this is a, a stretch of the worth that is so uh, unchristian. <laughs> To just put it one way, these countries are mostly another religion, uh, non-Christian religion, Buddhist, Hindu, Islam, uh, communism, uh, all kinds of, of different types of philosophies. So when you go into North, North Africa, I tell you, that country is just really barren. And, you know, Mali and, and Algeria and all these places. Then the Middle East, we have, uh, as a church, we have about 500 million, I mean, there's 500 million people in the Middle East countries and North Africa. We have about 5,000 members there out of 500 million. And there's some other Christian groups, but you know, it's dangerous to preach in the Middle East, as we all know. So it's, it's very, very difficult. Then you go on to the Istan countries, Iran, Afghanistan, some of these countries have almost no Christians that we know of. India is Hindu uh, with millions of gods, but they have really clamped down now anti conversion laws and this kind of thing in India used to be more open to convert people there. China is really clamping down, as you know, persecuting the Uyghurs in the West, who are Muslims actually, but they don't like them. And their whole country, they've closed 200 of our churches. We have about a half million members in China. The good thing is, what we hear about our members is that they are, like they did before, <laughs> they get stronger when the persecution comes. They go to their homes, they get on the internet, and they, they feel the power of standing for the Lord in a tough country. So we're thankful for that. In fact, in the Middle East and China, the leaders there have told us that as we went to the internet for church and all these kind of things, that we see a lot of black screens. <laughs> in fact, many, many black screens. There's no name, no face there, but a lot of people are listening in. So I think the gospel through the, the COVID pandemic is actually spreading in some amazing ways some of these countries. Southeast Asia, you know, it's, it's the, the countries there, Bangladesh and Cambodia, Vietnam, all of those countries. Uh, just tremendous challenges. Japan, even Korea, North Korea. We prayed at the, the border of North Korea praying for regime change because they won't let anybody there think differently than they do. So the, the challenges are just massive. And uh, we could be tempted to be discouraged. Am I trying to discourage you today? You know, we've got 7.5 billion people. We have 22 million Adventists. There's other Christians and there's other people that know the gospel, but how will this thing ever finish? Will it be another 170? Will it be a couple thousand more years until Jesus comes? What do you think? Now, I believe he's coming very, very soon. And what I want to tell in the rest of the time I have today, just tell you a few stories that Janet and I have found out about that encourage us and uh, that I think give glimpses of how God's going to finish the work. I mean, Muslims believe in dreams. There are a lot of them getting dreams. There's lots of things we could tell you about it. it it's, God is working with each culture in their own way, but it's still a massive challenge. And so I just want to spend the rest of the time sort of talking about our God, the miracle worker, because he is. And I don't know what your need is today, but he can work a miracle for you. He can give you a miracle in a marriage or with your kids or with your money or whatever else it is. But right now, we talk a little bit today about the world vision and what we should be doing for the world. 
as well as Templeton Hills and Paso and Atascadero and Slow. I just want to share these stories as an encouragement to you, I hope. Just last week in a meeting, Elder Wilson uh, was not going to do this, but he he thought, you know, at the beginning of this meeting, I've got a story I'm going to tell you. Uh, Just encouragement came to his mind. Actually, the you know, we read through the Bible together around the world, a chapter a day, and happened to be in Zechariah uh, 2. And, you know, he always tries to bring just some text out of a chapter for the day when he starts a meeting, say, this, this spoke to me this morning. That day he started telling a story about Tanzania um, in, in one part of Tanzania. Tanzania actually is fairly receptive. They, they baptize a lot of people there, and, and that part of Africa has quite a, quite a number of members. In fact, by the, by the year 2025, probably half of our church will be Africa <laughs> out of 25 million or whatever it is. And South America, you know, the Southern Hemisphere tends to be more receptive and grow faster. But he said what happened is in this area of Tanzania, a non-Christian religion, it is Islam, we don't want to make them look bad today, but it just it, there's a part of Tanzania that's very unreachable. They had tried a number of times to reach somehow there, and it's just very closed, very much uh, our religion is the one that's going to succeed here. So anyway, he said four or five young uh, kids, and these, I'm most encouraged by young people and what's going on in the world today. I see some here at church today. God is using young people in amazing ways. Uh, these four or five young people decided they were going to be bold. They were going to go and hold a meeting in this community, which was some kilometers from the towns they lived in or the little neighborhoods. So they... Uh, prepared some of their talks and this kind of thing, but their main preparation, they realized they were going up against Satan in a very strong place. And so they decided they were going to spend a lot of time praying. And so they went for two weeks. They rented a place to be. They'd applied to have some meetings. And they began to pray. And they said, you know, we know they're not happy here that we're coming, so let's go out by the sea. It's near the Indian Ocean. So they would go out at five in the morning and pray for hours right on the sea, just kneeling there and praying. And when young people pray, stuff happens, folks. I tell you, it really does. In fact, right now around the world, I'm so excited because young people are leading prayer chains and prayer ministries. They had a 24-7 prayer time from Myanmar here about a week ago. And they're, they're organizing it all on Zoom. They do it, the streaming, whatever. It's just uh, the, the prayer emphasis has just exploded. And a lot of the young people are the ones in, in Asia and whatever doing that. So anyway, they're uh, kneeling there on the beach one morning. The elders had heard about this now uh, because the authorities agreed to let them hold a meeting. But then the elders and those in the area were not happy. So they sent these young people to kill them. And they showed up at the beach to kill these kids. But when they got there, there was an amazing wall of fire around these young people as they prayed. And they had to go back. And they told the leaders what was happening. They said, oh, we don't know what's going on. That doesn't make sense. Anyway, some later, they began the meeting, and they sent these young people again to steal their equipment, their, their equipment out of this building. They were keeping it in during the night, whatever, and they went to steal the equipment. They came back that time saying, we got there, and there was this tall man in a white garment with a shiny sword, and we, we couldn't go, we couldn't do that. At this point, the elders got mad, and they said, you guys are just cowards. We don't know what's going on here. We'll have to take care of this ourselves. And so they went to the place where the meeting was, and these elders, these, uh, they were two of them dressed in the regalia of, of the place. And they went in and they strode down the middle aisle. They were going to take care of the preacher and, and deal with this thing. As they got closer and closer, all of a sudden, they started jumping around and running and said, We're burning, we're burning, we're burning. 
Later, they told them that they had seen this fire around the speaker, and they had begun to burn themselves. Nobody else saw a fire or anything like that. Zechariah 2.5 is the promise that Elder Wilson shared with us. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I'll be the glory in her midst. I was reading in, uh, which book was it? I don't remember, but it talks about how a promise that when people are humble, when they pray, when they're just serving God, the angels love to be around them, and they come around them like a wall of fire. That's why it says. So it's a beautiful, beautiful story. One example. And then um, talking about young people, Middle East is uh, so trying to figure out how can they do something there. You can't go and witness. You can't preach because it's so locked down that they will actually do you in if you do. So how do we work it? And uh, Homer Tricartan used to be the president of Middle East North Africa Union. He said he went down to the River Plate College down in Argentina, and he was sharing with some of the university students there and all about you know, the difficulties they were having in the Middle East and how they needed help. And he said, really, what we need are warm bodies. He said, you know, we, we can't preach meetings and all. We need people to come and live there and be there, but it's so dangerous, people, you know, to even witness about Jesus. And he said at the end of the meeting, he didn't plan to, but he decided on the spur to make a call. These young people were sitting there, and he said, what we need are some young people like you who will come and live in the Middle East, not to preach, not to do anything, but just to go to our universities, be Waldensian students, and do this kind of thing. Would you, some of you be willing to come forward and say you'd do that if we can open the doors for you? 200 young students came forward. He just told them that they could be killed. They could have terrible things happen to them. They came forward, and a number of them have. They're, they're serving, we know, a close friend of ours who's going to a university in, in um, Istanbul, in Turkey. And they just go, they live there, asking God to open the door that they can help somebody to know about Jesus. Uh, South America got excited, and they, uh, that division said, you know, we need to take an offering here to send away. Most, most places want to get more money for their own work. But they decided to pay for 25 pastoral families, a very careful selection process, They've sent to the worst and most difficult places through the Middle East and through the Istan countries. And they're, they're paying their way for the next five years to, to go and do that. So the church is pulling together. Christians pull together to work for some of these difficult areas, and that's really encouraging. But um, we've got the GYC and the AYCs and the PYCs and the Youth and Mission in Europe. And you saw Fountain View. I'm around the Weimar kids. There's some wonderful people in our schools, young people that are committed to giving their lives to Jesus in whatever way he asks them to do. So I'm very encouraged by all of that. Um, one couple that I know well has been an amazing challenge, I guess, and just uh, an encouragement to me. Uh, Tammy and Keith Mosier, I don't know if you know them, but they, um, Keith was going to Weimar. I was on the board up there, and they... Uh, he was taking theology. He was a sharp young guy. You know, he's one, when I was president here in Central, we wanted to get to come and be a pastor <laughs> and put him in a church like Templeton because we thought he'd do a great job. But he said, you know, I just feel I felt called for some time that I've got to go back to Congo. He, he'd grown up with a missionary family. He tells, when he tells you about it, it just moves you that Congo is so ungoverned, so wild, so, so dangerous, really, in many places. And so he and Tammy, she'd been raised by missionaries too, they determined when they graduated from school they were going to go and they were going to pay their own way, they were going to start a ministry, 
going to northeast Congo. And if you know Congo, that's the worst. It's, it's a jungle, very dangerous for any white person to live there, frankly. They went and set up a little compound, praying much, asking God to guide their life, raising money, Congo Frontline Missions. You may have heard about it. And they raised money over the next few years. We were there about two years ago in northeast Congo. And uh, I can tell you, it's a wild place. They, they couldn't even uh, come by road to where we were. It's just so, so bad. It was that many kilometers, that many miles away. But he translated for me, and they have four little kids, just happiest kids running all over. They look like little monkeys, but uh, they were enjoying. But they lived in this compound, couldn't really go anywhere afar, but they had established 70 different local church planters who were planting churches in that northeast section. They had already turned over 20 churches with buildings to this Northeast Congo Union mission. So, you know, I, it's just so thrilling. Living in danger, the wife could not dare go out of the compound. One day, word got out somehow. Someone had died or something on the compound, and they came to the locals were going to take care of things. They heard they were coming, so they got in their vehicle and began to take off. But the vehicles, um, the locals caught up with them, had gas cans. They had their four little kids in there and them. They were trying to make it out of that area, but they were coming along with gas cans, threatening to set the thing on fire. But at that moment, a sheriff from a local community showed up and rescued them. So, you know, it's been difficult for them. They couldn't actually go back. They had to turn it over to the locals, which is a good thing. They're, they're still running it. But uh, they ended up in Chad, of all places. <laughs> if you know anything about Chad, that's even worse. So when I see some of these young people that are willing to sacrifice everything, and spend years raising their children, it's moving. It's Janet and I. Go around the world, we see these global mission pioneers out there in these little places, cities out in the middle of India or China or somewhere, you know, and they're just, they need our prayers. Sorry. Many of them live very little. Even Cuba, we went there recently. The pastors there get $50 a month, and uh, the government won't let money come in. We would give them money, but they won't let some of it come in. And uh, you can barely buy rice for that. They have to have another job, do other things where they're there. But some of these governments are so uh, wrong, you know. Congo's a wonderful place, but it's, it's got resources that could be doing very well. But instead, China and these others come in and just rip them off, and their own, their own people are just out to make what they can. And so they aren't able to take a big, wild country like that with resources and turn it into to a productive place to, to be and live. Well, anyway, uh, pray for Keith and Tammy. They're back for a little while in America while their kids get a little education. But if I know them, they'll be back out again pretty soon. But that's a PTSD, I guess you call it, type of an experience she had out there. It's, it's difficult. So God's people are going, from many churches, going out there to try to reach every person. And yet, the challenges are so great. Population's outstripping all Christianity every year. You know, it just is. And many of these countries are 95, 99% some other religion, and the culture is just so locked down. So what do we do? Do we get discouraged? Um, we were with um, people in Sudan. We, we met, Sudan's been another civil war messed up place. The, the pastors and their wives came out from 
Sudan to meet with us on the edge of Uganda. And uh, boy, the stories. And if you saw those people, Janet mentioned that they just, their health is not good. You know, they just are, are suffering. They're very thin. And uh, we got a story from the president's wife of that region in South Sudan. She had uh, been there, her husband had gone on a trip out of the area. While that was happening, the Civil War closed in on their house. And uh, she was scared to death, but then all the members came to the pastor's house. <laughs> so she became the center of this thing, and she has PTSD, is that, yeah, anyway, she had the same kind of thing. She ended up in a refugee camp for a while in Uganda. Many of the women did, families somewhere else, separated from their families, and these women had been so traumatized through the way they were treated and things that had happened to them. So in this refugee camp, the story they told, they, they said, what can we do for God? And I think this is a lesson today for us. What can we do in our neighborhood? What can we do for Templeton? What can we do in our townhome area? What can we do? And they, they, in this terrible situation, thought, what can we do here? All these women. And they decided to start a little ministry they called Come We Pray. And so they invited the women to just get together and pray for their families, for the terrible war, for all the things that were going on. And uh, they became friends. And over time, the president's wife knew how to make these purses. They put beads, soap beads onto them, and they could sell them for a little bit. And so she was able to get some beads in there, and they started while they'd pray, and then they'd work on the purses, and they'd laugh, and it gave them some relief and some friendship. Do you know at the end of that year, they baptized 117 people into Jesus and the Adventist Church? Just from loving, finding a way to pray with people, we found that one of the greatest outreach methods is just to care and pray. You can pray for your neighbor's kids, pray for their relatives when they're sick, whatever it is. God will use the love and the praying to work a miracle for them. And then they'll say, wow, tell us a little more about this God who just answered my prayer. You know, so it works in every culture. Muslims will pray with you. Other religions will pray with you. Um, Elder at Kenya, quickly, they uh, started following some of the Jen and I work a lot with Revival and Reformation. There's a website, revivalreformation.org. You can get a lot of good resources there. We've been gathering, but they uh, started, we, we started praying at 7 every morning, 7 every evening, 7 and 7, 7, uh, for the outpouring of the Spirit around the world. And they took it seriously. This elder and his wife, the Ronos, and got their pastor. They began to pray once a week for two or three hours. Then eventually they started inviting neighbors and other members, and the thing grew. They had 50 or 100 people gathering, praying for each other, watching God work. And to make the story short, over time, they did the 10 days of prayer in January, they did the 40 days of prayer, and they ended up with the 100 days of prayer ahead of the 2015 uh, General Conference. They had 400 people coming, and they were bringing their pastors. They had a bunch of pastors coming. By the time of General Conference in 2015, this group there in Eldoret, Kenya, had baptized 16 pastors and had brought their churches over. But now, it's gone on since 2015, Bible study classes for prayer groups meeting, then they'd have Bible study classes for some pastors that are interested. And these are African pastors, smaller areas. But there's been over 116 pastors now that have been baptized, bringing, many of them bringing churches with them and everything. So this is what we believe is going to happen in the last thrust of the Three Angels' messages. We're going to see large movements, even uh, you know, pastors of some of these other faiths that will, will shift and, and understand the Sabbath, some of these things. So anyway, that's, that's an encouraging story in Kenya. Um, a story that I just heard recently that, that was exciting to me was about Lawrence Tanabasi. He's, he was president of the Solomon Islands, and um, 
he was kind of minding, minding his own business one day there in Paradise, Solomon Islands, and his cell phone uh, vibrated. And he looked at it, it was a block call. And he thought, well, is that some marketer? They want me to get a timeshare in Bora Bora or something like that. Anyway, and said, well, I better answer it. So he answered it. It was a scratchy connection. But on the other end was a guy saying, uh, are you Pastor Tanabasi of the Seventh-day Adventists? He said, yes, I am. He said, well, please hold. The Prime Minister of Australia wants to speak with you. So he thought, oh, what have I done now? What's God going to do to me now? So anyway, he began, the Prime Minister came on and said, I'm sorry to interrupt your day, but he said, you know, we're having quite a bit of trouble between the government and the rebels there in the Solomon Islands. And he said, what I hear is that you know everybody in the Solomon Islands. <laughs> and the pastor said, well, I don't know everybody, but I do know a lot of them. He said, well, I hear you uh, are pastor of the rebels and the other side. And so he said, I need to get a message, a cell phone, to the rebel leader. He said, we have ideas, my people have ideas, how we could bring this thing to an end, might save thousands of lives. Would you work with us? He was praying. He said, well, yeah, yeah, I'll do my best. And Anyway, he said, okay, you go home right away. A helicopter will show up, and a man will get out and give you an encrypted cell phone. You take it to the rebel leader that's in your church over on the other side and give it to him, tell him to follow the instructions, and then I can talk to him on a safe line. So he did. He went home, and sure enough, when he got home, there was a helicopter dropping with camouflage. <laughs> Guy got out, brought this encrypted cell phone, gave it to him, said, this could save a lot of lives, could bring peace. And he said, take it, take it. So he, got, he went to the border between the two. There was a no man's land in between. And they all knew him. He was Pastor Tanabasi. He had people on this side, people on that side. He'd gone back and forth before. But that day, the guard said, no, you can't go today. He said, there's something big going on. We've locked down the border. You're not going. So he pleaded. He asked. He argued even a little. But no, they were not letting him go that day. So he turned his car around, went to a park, and he prayed. And it says he prayed a lot. <laughs> God, what should I do? Should I stay? Should I go? I mean, these guards are saying I can't go. And he said it was like God was in his car with him. He felt like there, the word was go. <laughs> so he went back. He tried again with the guards. They said, no, we can't let you go. So he put his car in first gear and rammed the barricade. Second gear, he rammed the barricade and he got through. The guards were shouting at him, yelling at him. So he started driving across the no man's land. They were firing bullets at him. They hit the car. They think they hit him. <laughs> Finally, they sent something bigger, which exploded the car, shrapnel, metal everywhere. They had killed Pastor Tanabasi, except they didn't. <laughs> he came out. Rebels let him in. They saw they were, the other side was shooting at him. He must be okay. He, they let him across, and he went, drove to, to take the phone to the, the rebel leader, gave it to him. Then he went to a, an area market, place where he could get the best fruit and the best vegetables, on that part of the islands, which the government side didn't have. And so he got six bags of that full, put it in the car, and headed back. When he, when he went back, the rebels let him through. He went back to the other side. They were just standing in shock. We killed you. <laughs> we blew your car up. Are you a ghost? What's going on? They were so superstitious and so afraid of what had happened. He just brought the groceries in, two bags at a time, gave them the groceries. And then he said, no, my, my God protected me. And he said, here are some groceries for you. And I'm sorry I made your day hard on you, but uh, have a good day. Off he went. 
Within a week, their peace had come, lives were being saved, and God had a victory. And then five of those guards later came to him and said, would you please teach us about God? And they became Seventh-day Adventist Christians. God can work in so many miraculous ways as he did in the book of Acts. And I believe he's, he's doing that and will do it if we're willing to be used by him. I guess, you know, I could tell you stories about the U.S. Uh, there's churches in the U.S. that have found ministries that have just exploded their growth. Uh, San Diego Paradise Church was feeding people, and then they started having a lot of immigrants coming in there, and they realized they needed bigger help. They needed help with immigration and help getting jobs. And so they took that on as their ministry. And my understanding last I heard was they had grown dramatically. They had 50 different nations in their church. But their church had been kind of sputtering before that. But they, they said, God, what's the need? How can I do it? So America's the same as, as Africa when we just say, God, help me experience what you're doing. How can I do what I can to help you? Uh, one last story before we close, I guess. And it's Janet and my story. We moved in 2010 to the General Conference and had to live in... Uh, uh, Columbia, Maryland. We were gone, as I say, over 200 days a year around traveling the world. We didn't get to know our neighbors too well, but we walk. You know, that's what we do for, for recreation and everything is we walk. We still do it at night in Templeton. So if we're ever murdered at night in the streets of Templeton, you'll know what happened. But, but that's, that's what we do. So we, were, we got to know the neighbor across the street. His name was Bob. His wife was Barb. And uh, grew to love him. He was a great guy. He'd been Gotten in trouble with alcohol early on, had to go to AA, and now for probably 50 years he'd been a sponsor, going to AA every week. And uh, he was a Jew. He was raised near in Tacoma Park, new Adventist, liked Adventist, but he was a Jew all his life. He was a Jew. And so, anyway, we got acquainted with him, listened to him. He had a woodworking thing. He was retired by that time. He was a math teacher in high schools, great guy. People loved him. He was tutoring, doing woodworking, and we just listened. And, Walked. He never wanted to really talk much about Jesus, you know. Once in a while, a higher power and all of that. But he, Jesus, of course, for a Jew is, is something you're not used to talking about. So we didn't, didn't press that. But anyway, we took him out to eat. We were friends. He'd snow blow our driveway when we were out of the country. And we'd, uh, you know, ask favors sometimes. And just fell in love with Bob. He's a great guy. Um, suddenly, Bob got Parkinson's at the year, about 70 years of age. And so we were... Concern for him on that. We were on another trip recently after that, and uh, when we got back from the trip, he texted Janet. We'd been praying for them for their kids and a few things like that, and he, he was, they were all right with that. And she, he called and he said, they just diagnosed me with pancreatic cancer yesterday, and I've got to have surgery, just a couple days ago, and I've got to have surgery tomorrow. Would you pray for me? Well, Janet was super busy. We'd just gotten back from one place and had to go to Japan a few days, but she felt God telling her she needed to go and sit with the wife. She didn't know her that well, but somewhat. Found her in the hospital in Baltimore, sat with her all day during the surgery. The daughter was there. They had a great time together. But the caring bonded us even closer together, just, just being there when she needed it. So anyway, they, they took out the cancer at that point. It was another year or so that he was thinking he was over it and everything was going to be fine. And we just kept loving him and you know, tried to talk to Jesus a little bit with him. But... Not too much, because he, he'd always kind of veer away from that subject. But then uh, his cancer came back and was in his abdomen, and there was a, a tumor they couldn't remove. And so kind of knew what the, the diagnosis was going to be eventually on that. So he began to open up a little more. I remember walking with him one day uh, and him saying, you know, I have been thinking a little bit about forever after the, you know, what happens after this. 
But he was real touchy about not getting anything pushed on him, so we were just careful, and Janet was talking to him. We walked with him and prayed with him. But uh, it turned out that as he got worse, he was a little more open, and he asked a few questions about things. And so one day, I don't know if you've seen the little dramatic thing that was produced in 2016, The Case for Christ. It's, it's really good. It's a story of Lee Strobel done in a very fine acting way. Investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune had won awards and um, you know, he was able to, to uh, and he was an atheist, okay? Did this investigative thing to try to prove to his wife that God didn't exist and all and ended up converted. So anyway, we showed that to him and it's all about evidence for the resurrection and how strong that evidence is that Jesus was alive, was seen by people after he was raised, and all this kind of thing. And so he, he was moved by that, but he said, well, you know, I, you, you obviously, you know, I've got to have time to process all this. So he kept talking, and I'll hurry along here, but the, the story goes that eventually we talked more with him. He was willing to read some scriptures together. So we wrote Old Testament scriptures to start with, you know, that he could, Psalms and David. And, then we moved to the New Testament a little, John 6, 3, 16, and you know, some of those other texts about the future and that kind of thing. And he was thinking, but he, he said he just didn't know what to do. 70 years of Jew, he said, I just don't, I can change, you know. He said, I just don't know what's right and what isn't. And so we talked more. Anyway, what happened is um, one day we were over there and we kept trying to read some verses. I'd read you know, some about the state of the dead and some of that with him. The Jews really don't have anything to give you much on that. It's my understanding. So anyway, we were talking about it, and, and uh, finally said to him, I said, Bob, what, what is it that holds you back? You know, I felt like he was kind of accepting Jesus, but he just couldn't do it. He said, well, I just don't know. I just don't know. Then he started getting real bad pain, so we said we better leave. So we um, said, could we pray with you before we go? So we did. We prayed with him. And then I think Janet asked him if he'd, if he'd like to pray, and he prayed. And he prayed, God, I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. And uh, so he, uh, we, we, then, then he seemed like he was getting a lot of pain. And then he started crying really bad, just really crying. And so we thought, well, we better leave. So we left. But, you know, later that evening, he texted Janet on the phone. And he said, I've been troubled, struggling all day long. He said, when we were praying... I told God, show me what to do, make it clear. And he said, I had the most overwhelming peace I've ever had. Come over me. And he says, I believe. Then I think texted him back and said, did you accept Jesus? He said, well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. We went, gave him some stuff and talked to him the next morning. By the time we got back from our next little trip, he wanted us to come over and have an official service with him. This uh, black guy there had taken him to his mega church and kind of pushed Jesus a little too much, but he loved the guy. He was good, and so he wanted him there too. When we got done with our, we went over the four spiritual laws, basic gospel, you know, getting towards the sinner's prayer, but when we got there, he looked down at his wife, Barb. She had converted to Judaism when she married him, and she wasn't interested in any of this right now, you know. But she told him, you know, do what you want to, Bob, whatever you want to do. But anyway, he caught her eye. They got up went off to the side and hugged like this. It was beautiful. And she whispered something in his ear. We don't know what it was. But anyway, he came back, sat down, and we went through the sinner's prayer. And, and he accepted Jesus and then wrote this in his Bible. We asked him to write it down today. January thirteenth, two 2020, I accept Jesus Christ. The Son of God and my Savior, Bob Siskind. You know you've seen people come to Christ. It's nothing better in this world, is there? 
in our little world, we may not be in the Congo or China or wherever, but if we can find somebody. I love your testimony the other day, that joy about how God had led you, and Olga had a wonderful testimony too about praying and pressing one of her relatives because they got parking places in San Francisco unbelievably you know, because of that. All of us have our different mission. We have our different ministry. But God is calling us, I believe, who understand some of the extra teachings of Revelation, to hear Joel 2, to gather together as the apostles did in, in Acts, and to pray like we've never prayed, and to confess our sins, and to watch the Holy Spirit take over. Joel 2 says that there will be young people having visions, and old people having dreams, like me, and we'll see miracles, and all kinds of things happening in the sky, and it's coming. We know it's coming soon. And I guess my appeal today is just from, pray for me, that I will be sincere and really serious about taking it up to the next level with Jesus and in terms of witness, but in terms of prayer, in terms of really knowing his heart. His heart is to seek and save the lost. That's what he's all about. And when I pray and I have his heart, I have his mind, I'll know what to do with people. Uh, this, this is about one of the best things I've seen on uh, witnessing. Personal effort for others should be preceded by much secret prayer. For it requires great wisdom to understand the science of saving souls. Before communicating with men, commune with Christ. At the throne of heavenly grace, obtain a preparation for ministering to the people. And then there's another statement, too, I want to share with you. It's about you, how you'll be blessed as you pray more, as you witness. Every effort made for Christ will react in blessing upon ourselves. If we use our means for his glory, he will give us more. As we seek to win others to Jesus, bearing the burden of souls in our prayers, our own hearts will throb with quickening influence. God's grace, our own affections will glow with more divine fervor. Our whole Christian life will be more of a reality, more earnest, more prayerful. God, help me not to be so selfish, even when I pray. Help me to pray for these places. Uh, we brought today a little map thing we've got from Adventist Mission. And we'll show you some websites in a minute, too. But... Um, it says, not all are called to personal labor in foreign fields. <laughs> You're glad about that, right? <laughs> but all can do something by their prayers and their gifts to aid the missionary work. Out in the back, you'll see this little urban prayer map th that they've put together. And there's about 580-some cities, over a million in the world. And we've made a special effort to try to start centers of influence, get into all those cities with this message. And God said in one place that if we will do the work we've been told to do for the cities... It will unleash a mighty movement which has never been witnessed. It's talking about more than the book of Acts. So we're going into cities. We've got some projects coming on right now. Uh, just last week, voted some extra things. This, uh, it's called Mission Unusual Tokyo. Tokyo is the largest city in the world, 35 million people. Japan is not a Christian country at all, half, half percent Christian. But these 10 people, one of them was president of the Tokyo Conference. He and his wife decided they were done with administration. They were going to be church planters. They've stepped into this project. Ten people have come. Some of them are from South America, some are from Europe, some are from America, but they have specialties. And their goal is to spend years there, learning the language, throwing their life into Japan, trying to win as many people as they can before Jesus comes back. Calcutta, we started several years ago. We only had a church of 500 members, one church in a city of 5 million. Mother Teresa's world-impacting ministry was a block down the street from our church, and we're sitting huddling, talking about, well, we're going the time of trouble, I guess. I don't know. But we weren't doing much. But the plan has been to plant 50 new churches, sending these global mission volunteers in there and, and planting Bible workers. We now have 16, and they have work going on in the other 
35 areas so they can plant another bunch. I brought this little, uh, I'm going to close soon. I'm trying to make Zach look good by preaching a little long today. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, you know what this is? See if you can't answer. It's a yak from the base of Mount Everest. And they have a lot of yaks up there. But uh, we, we've worked with the people in China, and we couldn't the last time get in there. I went on up. They had a tour then with the leaders and some of us from the GC. A prayer tour. They said, let's go get prayer walk, but we'll prayer tour. So we went on a van up through Lhasa, 17,000 feet up there. It's kind of hard to breathe, but big city. And, and really, it's where the Dalai Lama comes to live part of the year. And we went to the temples and everything, but we were praying all the way along. God, open this. There's no hardly any Christians here at all. Please open this territory. Show us what we can do. Just heard a week or so ago, three families, indigenous families from China, have now moved into that city to just live there and, and be that infiltration that God needs. So anyway, I have a rock from Everest if you want to see that over here later. <laughs> anyway, we've got these little prayer maps on your way out if you want to take it. It's done like a subway, but it's got every one of our divisions in a certain color, and then the city's over a million in that division. So for your own prayer closet, you might want to just have that and uh, you know, look at it once in a while, pray for some big cities. What good will it do? I believe every time we pray, angels are sent and stationed, we're told, in a place to do some good for God. Well, okay, thank you for your patience and for being with us today. And by God's grace, let's pray more for the world as well as our own family. It will bless our own family and we'll know better how to help them. But let's also remember to give as well. I, you know, I don't want, this isn't an offering appeal, but general conference um, mission offerings went down probably 25 or 30% this year because of COVID, people aren't in church, don't throw the $2 in. But I'm telling you, the missionaries that are all over this world, 50% of the funding for that comes from mission offerings. So remember the mission, world mission offering once in a while, put some money in there or go to one of these websites for more stories, and they have ways to help the mission field too. So, uh, would you just stand with me? Let's have a closing prayer together. Um, and I'm going to give you just a minute in silence first to and just see if the Lord's touching your heart. Something. More time with Him to understand your mission. Uh, for some of these missionaries out there to pray for them more. Lord, I know I find in my own life, even my prayer life, that it's so easy to just kind of get distracted and jumping around and not really claiming promises for your people around the world, for these countries that are so locked down. Lord, North Korea, we prayed at the border of North Korea, that regime needs to change, God, somehow. China now, please pull it back, uh, the persecution they're doing, and we could go on naming, but I just pray for the Middle East and these things. Help us to really care about our own territory here, always do everything we can, but at the same time to at least send some angels flying from earnest prayer uh, to these, some of these places to help. You, you put it on our hearts how to pray. Give us your heart. Give us your mind, Lord. Thank you for this church. Thank you for all you're doing in their life. I do pray for their relatives, their children, their loved ones. I know that's first in their heart, and you have promised to open blind eyes and set captives free. You promised to contend with the ones who contend with us save our children, and you promise to break the strongholds as we use the weapons of warfare from Ephesians 6. So thank you, God, for hearing. Bless our school, our farm, our ministries here. May we be that light uh, candle taken of the world in this, this county. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.